Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called at the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and it's good to worship with you today. Uh, If you were here last week, we kicked off a brand new sermon series on miracles, miracles. And I think that part of why so many people have a hard time believing in the Bible or taking it seriously or taking it as a historical book is because of the numerous accounts of miraculous events. And here's the idea. Maybe people in ancient times believed in things like supernatural occurrences, angels and demons, talking snakes, seas parting, resurrections, but we modern people, we can't possibly take them as true. Because we live in a time of scientific advancement, cultural progress, intellectual enlightenment. These biblical stories, they just sound so ridiculous. And I I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that because I feel it too sometimes. Even as a pastor, I understand how unbelievable it sounds when I say something like a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago was the son of God. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, not once. He did all sorts of miracles. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He fed thousands. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He was buried, but on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And if we put our faith in him, if we trust in him, we'll be saved from our sin. And have eternal life. This Jesus will one day return and he's going to fix everything that's broken. He's going to make all things new. Even as I say this out loud, I can hear it. I can hear how absurd it sounds to our modern sensibilities. And yet, I believe and I know this to be true with every fiber of my body. 
I think we should be careful sometimes not to become chronological snobs where we look down on all ancient people and we say they're backwards, ignorant, simple-minded because miracles were just as unbelievable to them as they are to us today. And yes, of course, while the Bible talks about the supernatural, the extraordinary, most of the audience of the Bible in ancient times and throughout church history, most of the Bible's audience has never, ever seen, witnessed, and never will witness a physical miracle. Because miracles, by definition, are not meant to be regular, repeatable, repeated occurrences. They're not ordinary. And you know what? In the Bible, miracles, they never happen just because. You know, in, uh, in, in Marvel movies, in superhero movies, like the origin movies, like in Spider-Man, when, when Peter Parker's bitten by the radioactive spider, he wakes up the next morning and all of a sudden he has these powers. What does he do? He runs out and he tests the powers out. He jumps off buildings, climbs the ceiling. Jesus never does that in the Bible. He never performs miracles just for the fun of it or even just for himself. Miracles are always used in the Bible to convey deeper truths about God or to authenticate the teachings that go with the miracles. So, for example, in the book of Acts, the apostles, they go out and they proclaim the gospel and they preach, and their message is accompanied by miraculous signs. And the point is that the miraculous signs validate and give authority to the message of the apostles. Today's passage that uh, we just heard and read is from the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is a little bit different from the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. John takes a different approach from the other Gospel writers in that he doesn't mention a lot of miracles. If we go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's just miracles all over the place. John only writes and mentions a few miracles, and he specifically calls them signs. Signs. They are signs to show us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And today, we come to the very first miracle that Jesus performs. I want to show you a painting, if we can bring that up. Anyone here recognize this painting? Maybe a few of you might. I think a lot of us won't. This is The Wedding at Cana by Paolo Veronese. It, this painting has the distinction of being the painting that hangs directly across from the Mona Lisa in the Louvre in Paris. So if you go to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, there's going to be this huge crowd gather around the Mona Lisa. And the Mona Lisa is tiny. Everyone has their phones out, and everyone's trying to see the Mona Lisa and get a picture of it. But directly across from the Mona Lisa is this huge painting. It's big. But no one's looking at it. 
It might be the most overlooked painting in the world. And I think in many ways, the miracle that this painting depicts in our passage is often similarly overlooked. You may have heard of it. It's kind of like a cool party trick that Jesus does. He turns water into wine, but I think the same attention is often not paid to this miracle as, it, as to the flashier miracles, like walking on water or raising Lazarus from the dead. But this miracle is such an important sign of what Jesus came to do. So in our passage, Jesus is at a wedding. And this, remember, is the first. So it's before all the other miracles. It's before all the teachings, all the run-ins with the Pharisees, all the fame, the crowds. Jesus is just a regular guy. He's the son of a carpenter. He's at a wedding. He's with his friends. He's with his new disciples. He's with his family. And weddings in Jesus' time, they were week-long affairs. We thought we did weddings big today. Back then, it was a week long. And a couple, they would, they would get engaged. And after they got engaged, they would functionally be married. But at the very end of the engagement period would be this week-long crazy party. And it would be this kind of climactic conclusion to the engagement period, this, this celebration of the marriage. It would be very expensive. And the bride and groom, they would be responsible to pay for all of it. And with all the societal pressures, it would be very shameful for them if they were to run out of food or wine at the wedding. So we have a mini crisis here because that's exactly what happens. And Mary comes to Jesus and tells him, Jesus, there's no more wine. And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But Mary, she kind of just ignores him and tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And then Jesus tells these servants to fill six huge barrels with water. And these jars, they were used for ceremonial washing, for Jewish rites of purification. They were religious jar, for religious purposes. And Jesus tells them, fill these up with water. And they obey. And they fill them up all the way to the brim. And then he tells them, take some of this water, bring it to the head wedding coordinator, the, the master of ceremonies, to taste and he tastes it, and he says, wow, wow, this is the good stuff. This is Jesus' first miracle. And it's really significant that this is his first miracle, because he could have chosen to do anything. But the fact that this is his inaugural sign it is significant because it sets the tone for all the other signs to come. It establishes the nature and the goal of his mission. 
This is why in our country, when a president is elected, there's the inauguration, and the president delivers his inaugural address. And in this address, he lays out his vision for our country for the next four years. Jesus could have started his ministry anywhere with any other miracle, but he chooses a wedding feast and he turns water into wine. Why? What is his vision for his ministry and his mission? I know some maybe even in this room, have tried to use this miracle as a license to consume alcohol in, in, in any way you want. Jesus turned water into wine so I can drink as much alcohol as I want. And yes, I will say the Bible never prohibits alcohol consumption. Wine in the Bible is often seen as a blessing. But... I, I, I want to say right here in the beginning that the abuse of alcohol and drunkenness are clearly condemned in the Bible. This miracle is not about the wine. It's what the wine represents. In the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. Psalm 104:15 tells us, God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. And Jesus, he doesn't perform this miracle at a bar. He does this at a wedding. Weddings are also really significant in the Bible. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Right? In, in, in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, and he joins them together. And then in the, in the book of Revelation, we see what marriage is all about. It's an analogy of God's relationship with his people. So the Bible ends with this glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. And right here in John 2, Jesus' first miracle is a sign of what he has come to do. Bring joy and celebration. His mission is to provide joy. I want to highlight just three dimensions, three aspects of this joy from our passage. I want to talk about reflexive joy, ceremonial joy, and gracious joy. First, reflexive joy. I just said joy is central to Jesus' mission. In Hebrews 12.2, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' motivation for his mission was joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But it's not just our joy. That's not Jesus' primary motivation. It's not just that we would be joyful, but it's his joy. What this means is Jesus came not only to bring us joy, but he came for his joy because the two are entwined. Jesus' joy and our joy are in direct relation. It's reflexive. The purest, the most natural sign that you love somebody is that their joy naturally brings about in you a reflex response of joy. 
When they're happy, it makes you happy. When they laugh, it makes you laugh. Pastor David just talked about this with David Jr. in the snow. His delight brought him delight. Why do I spend hours every day trying to make my eight-month-old son Jacob laugh? It's because his joy brings me joy. Seeing him laugh, seeing him smile, it lifts me up. In the same way, God is committed to our joy. We were created to glorify and enjoy him. He delights in our joy, in our celebration of him. Uh, it was my wife's birthday a few weeks ago. And uh, my wife's birthday is January 3rd. And uh, it's, it's like a week after Christmas. So it's, it's, stress, it's stressful for me because I have to think about a Christmas gift for her, a birthday gift for her, and then the additional gifts from the boys, right, from our kids that, that, that I have to think of and provide. And you'd think that after 12 years of marriage almost, I would have figured out what she likes, what she doesn't like, what she needs. Uh, but this year, it was a complete fail. <laughs> it was a complete fail. Uh, and it's my fault, not, 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 not that she's picky, but just, just to recap, we ended up returning the Christmas gift that I got her, the birthday gift that I got her, in addition to the gifts that the boys got her. We even changed the dinner reservation that I made for her birthday because uh, she didn't want to go somewhere that I didn't like. So uh, we ended up even changing that. My mission was to bring her joy because it would bring me joy. I wanted her to open up her gifts and burst into tears because she loved the gifts so much that would have heightened my joy. But not this year. <laughs> Reflexive joy is the purest expression of love. But unfortunately, our love is tainted by our sin and our selfishness. We often don't rejoice at the joy of others. Instead, we often compare ourselves to others. We even rejoice when others fail. You know, I can spend all day smiling and laughing at my eighth-month-old smiling. But when my older three boys... When they're delighting and rejoicing in being rambunctious and noisy and disturbing my peace, disobeying me, it drives me crazy sometimes. I don't rejoice. I get angry, even though they're joyful, because they're interfering with my peace and disobeying me. I, I want to ask you this. If we say that we love God, if, if we say, God, I love you, I want to ask you, how important is God's joy to you? How motivated are we to want to bring him joy with our lives? You know, in the famous 80s movie, Chariots of Fire, it's an Academy Award winning film, 
one of the main characters, Eric Little, he's an Olympic runner and he's a Christian. And unlike all the people he's competing against, Olympic runners, their motivation is to compete and win and be the best. Little refuses to compete on Sunday because of his faith. And he shares his motivation and he says this, I run because when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I feel God's pleasure. If we say we love Jesus, how motivated are we to live for his pleasure? To put a smile on his face. Instead, we often think of our relationship with God kind of like eating healthy. It's good for you, the right thing to do, but man, are there tastier things out there. We like God, but we're not really looking for seconds. You know, I love that in our passage, when Jesus turns the water into wine, the master of ceremonies, he tries the wine and he knows right away, this is so much better than what the bride and groom were originally serving. What does it mean to us that the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is deeply committed to our joy? Should we not also commit ourselves to this reflexive joy? My next point is ceremonial joy. You know, it's no accident that Jesus has these servants fill jars that were meant for Jewish rites of purification. This water would be used for ceremonial washing to purify yourself ritually before God. And Jesus replaces this water with wine. And the statement he's making is this, you don't need to be ritually purified anymore because I will make you truly pure. You don't need to clean yourself because I will clean you, truly clean you. Instead of this never-ending ritual that you have to do again and again and again, sit back, put your feet up, Pour yourself a glass of the finest wine and rest. Jesus is redefining religion. It's not meant to be us doing whatever we can to be good enough, faithful enough, righteous enough, pure enough. We will never be that unless God cleans us. So the religion that Jesus brings is one where he cleans us and we respond by celebrating him. You know, I grew up in the church and I, I, I very much appreciate uh, what I learned about God growing up in the church. I, I learned the Bible. I, I knew the stories. But you know what? I, I never really understood, and it was never really emphasized in my church background, uh, the idea of grace. 
So faith for me, it, it, it was a list of things that I had to do. And then there was this other list of things I was not allowed to do. So I had to pray. I had to read my Bible. I had to go to church. I had to be a good son, a good student. I had to, to do the best that I could. But then there was this other list of things I couldn't do. I, I couldn't say swear words. I, I couldn't hang out with certain people. I couldn't have any vices. And it was such a burden to me. There was, there was nothing beautiful about it, but I just, I never felt good enough. I never felt like I was good enough. God was not about my joy, but I was always letting him down. God was just always disappointed in me. Gene, that's the best you got? I died for you and, and you can't even live for me? So what did I end up doing? I ended up doing just the bare minimum, just so I could get into heaven. But there was no delight. There was no intimacy. There was no joy in my relationship with God. I had just enough God in my life, and I didn't really want any more of him. I'll give him my Sundays. I'll, I'll do just what I need to do. I won't do any really bad sins. I didn't love him. There was nothing beautiful or, or amazing, wondrous about God. You know, Jesus commands these servants to fill ceremonial jars. And these servants, man, they must have been scratching their heads. We're at a wedding, Jesus. Why are we filling these jars? They're meant for like church. But they don't do the bare minimum. John specifically tells us they fill the jars to the brim. And what we see is that contained within these ceremonial jars, beneath the surface of this ceremony, there is incredible joy and delight. When you approach religious ceremony, Right? When you come to church, when you pray, when you read the Bible, maybe there are times where you feel like these servants. Man, what's the point of this? What's the point of this? Why are, why are, are we filling up these jars with water? Why, why am I bothering going to church? Is it worth it? Why bother reading my Bible and praying to God? Why join a community group or serve in the church? But I want to challenge you. Maybe in this new year, you try it. You commit to obeying Jesus all the way to the brim and see what it can do in your life. What treasures might these ceremonial jars hold? You know, I, I did the math, and Jesus makes like a thousand bottles worth of wine. It's just an abundance, an overflow beyond imagination, blessing after blessing, nonstop. Try it. Taste it. And, and it is worth noting that Jesus hates ceremony 
without joy. Because in the very next passage, right after this passage, Jesus goes to the temple and he sees what's going on in the temple. And the people, they've completely turned religion and they've made it transactional. There's no reverent worship. There's no delight. It's a marketplace. You have genuine, beautiful worship replaced by consumerism and business. And how does Jesus respond? He goes crazy. We see the complete opposite Jesus that we just saw in this passage. Look at um, John 2, verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus hates religion without joy. The times where he got the most upset in, in, throughout his ministry, the Pharisees who were missing the joy, who were making it restrictive, who were limiting what religion was. Jesus hates religion without joy. My last point is a gracious joy, a gracious joy. Uh, Jesus and his mother, Mary, they, they have a strange and awkward conversation in our passage. She, she comes to him and tells him, hey, there's no more wine. And his response, look at uh, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First, you'll notice he calls her woman instead of mother. If I were to call my mom today after church and I say, woman, how are you? This is your son. Um, it would be rude. It would be rude. But I think Jesus here, he's not being derogatory or rude. It, it's not that. It's not a derogatory and rude title. But what I think he is doing is he's indicating to her that his mission has begun and his relationship with her is not the same. He says to her, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, every time in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus' hour is mentioned, it's always referring to his death. So Jesus is at a wedding. It's a, it's a celebratory occasion. And he's sitting there in the middle of this wedding, and he's talking about his death. That's weird. That's strange. His, his, his response to his mother is basically, it's not yet my time to die. What's going on? You know, I, I just shared that I grew up in the church, and church for me was kind of th this list of demands on my life that I was never good enough. You know, in college, that all changed because I discovered grace. And I discovered the smile of God on, my, on me, the pleasure of God. And part of that journey for me, it, was, uh, it happened, I, I was attending Redeemer at, in the evenings and, and hearing Tim Keller preach the gospel uh, in a new way that I had never heard before. And I still remember 
hearing him preach on this passage. I still remember it. This is 20 years ago. And I remember him saying that when Jesus says this to his mother, he's doing what everyone does at a wedding. He's thinking about his own wedding. I think in the past, like, three years, I've officiated close to 50 weddings. It's a lot. And at each one, as I'm standing here at the altar, the nervous groom right here, and he's watching his bride walk down the aisle to him. I can't help it, but I think about my own wedding. I, I remember my beautiful bride walking down the aisle to me. It's, it's natural to do that at weddings. I'm sure we've all done it. Before I got married, what did I do when I went to weddings? I thought, man, what's my wedding going to be like? What do, what do I want at my wedding? What kind of music or food do I want? I'm thinking about my wedding. We all do this. And, and, and Keller said, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's looking ahead and he's thinking about his own wedding and what his wedding would cost. Jesus is the groom. His people are his bride. And he would give up everything for her. The price of Jesus' wedding, the cost, the cross, everything. Where he would pay for all of our sin. And the cross is why we don't need to beat ourselves up and to purify ourselves again and again and again. Because on the cross, he purifies his people. He makes his bride beautiful with his own shed blood. All of this to secure our joy. Why is Jesus' wine better than all the wines of this world? Why is his joy better than any other joy? Here's a really simple answer. It costs more. It costs more. It's the most expensive wine the world has ever seen. So how should we receive it? Let me ask you this. Imagine you were gifted a bottle of the world's most expensive wine. A Romane Conti Grand Cru sold in 2018 for over half a million dollars. One bottle. Or if you don't like wine, maybe you, got, you were gifted a free meal at the world's most expensive restaurant. What do you do? How do you receive that gift? On your way to the restaurant, you don't pull up at a drive through McDonald's and fill up before you go to this meal. You don't drink like high C or Hawaiian punch before taking a sip of this wine. You don't waste a drop. You savor every sip, every bite. The joy that Jesus has given to you is priceless. It's a gift of grace that you've received. So how should you treat it? Don't waste it. Savor it. Delight in it. But you know what we often keep trying to do? Even though the Christian life, it's a celebration of grace, we keep trying to go back and, and make it about our own works and our own righteousness, about what I need to do 
not what Jesus has done. So it's kind of like this. Imagine on Christmas morning, my kids run down, they grab the presents under the tree, they rip open the gifts, and instead of going and playing with their toys, you know what they do? They Venmo me the amount. That would be awkward. (laughs) Completely unnecessary. I would say, no, go play with your toys. Don't try to pay me back. But if you really think about it, let's let's make a, a more accurate analogy here. Imagine I sacrificed my eight-month-old baby for you. And and you try to give me a Starbucks gift card in response. That would be downright offensive to me. After what I gave you, you think that this is equivalent to a Starbucks gift card? How dare you? Jesus brings you joy at the cost of his own life. What is the only appropriate way to receive this joy? With gratitude, with delight, with wonder. And that is when we feel his pleasure. God is all about your joy. And because it's not based on your works, but it's based on Jesus' perfect sacrifice, guess what? You can never lose this joy. No matter what circumstances come your way, you can lose your job, you can lose your relationship, your reputation, your health, your family members, your friends, but you will never lose the abiding joy of Jesus. The world's wine will run out, but this wine never will. It will only get better and better and better. So savor it, delight in it, enjoy Jesus, the bringer of joy. Let's pray. Father, we we say we love you, but our love for you is so imperfect. It's so selfish. God, help us to love you the way that you love us. I pray that we would see our faith as something to treasure and delight in, not something that we have to do, a duty or an obligation, but open our eyes to the wonders of Jesus. Help us to taste and see that you are indeed so much better. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.